unified solidarity in opposition to a tiny discredited power elite, a refusal by the press, scholars, and intellectuals to continue to defend the actions of the ruling class, and inability of government to respond to the most basic needs of citizens, and a steady loss of will within the power elite to rule. The denial of opportunities to the sons and daughters of the professional class and the middle class galvanizes resistance. A crippling isolation soon leaves the power elite with neither allies nor outside support. Finally, the state is convulsed by a crisis, usually triggered by economic instability and often accompanied by military defeat, as was the case in Tsarist Russia or a long and futile conflict, as is the case with our own wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It is at the moment of crisis that revolution begins. It is never the poor, however, who make revolutions, as understood by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who disdained the revolutionary potential of the lumpen proletariat. Marx and Engels correctly saw the lumpen proletariat as providing the primary fodder for the goons, militias, and thugs employed by a discredited regime to hold on to power through violence. The dangerous class, the social scum, lumpen proletariat, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. This is a key factor in understanding the precursors for revolt. The idea that the very oppressed and poor are important as initiating and maintaining revolutions is a bourgeois one, Brinton writes. He adds another important caveat. No government has ever fallen before attackers until it has lost control over its armed forces or lost the ability to use them effectively, or, of course, lost such control of force because of interference by a more powerful foreign force, as in Hungary in 1849 or in 1956, and conversely, that no revolutionists have ever succeeded until they have got a predominance of effective armed force on their side. This holds true from spears and arrows to machine guns and gas, from Hippias to Castro. While violence and terrorism are often part of revolutions, the fundamental tool of any successful revolt is the nonviolent conversion of the forces deployed to restore order to the side of the rebels. Most successful revolutions are for this reason fundamentally nonviolent. The Russian Revolution was victorious once the Cossacks refused to fire on the protesters in Petrograd in 1917 and joined the crowds. The clerics who overthrew the Shah of Iran in 1979 won once the Shah's military abandoned the collapsing regime, and the harsh communist regimes in Eastern Europe were doomed in 1989 when the security forces no longer defended them. The superior force of despotic regimes is disarmed not through violence, but through conversion. James Davies, in his essay, Toward a Theory of Revolution, names the intolerable gap between what people want and what they get as the most important component of revolt. The rapidly widening gap between expectations and gratifications portends revolution, writes Davies. The most common case for this widening gap of individual dissatisfactions is economic or social dislocation that makes the affected individual generally tense, generally frustrated, 
That is, the greatest portion of people who join a revolution are preoccupied with tensions related to the failure to gratify the physical, economic needs and the needs of stable interpersonal, social relationships. However, like Marx, Engels, and Brinton, Davies adds that socioeconomically deprived poor people are unlikely to make a successful rebellion, a revolution, by themselves. It is rather a disenfranchised middle class and alienated members of the ruling class who orchestrate and lead a revolt. Without the support of disaffected bourgeoisie, disaffected nobles, and disaffected intellectuals, the French Revolution might have been some kind of grand, episodic upheaval, he notes. But it would not likely have amounted to the successful assault on the political power structure that a revolution amounts to. The same can be said for the American Revolution. Those who signed the Declaration of Independence and or became rulers of the new nation were gentlemen.